and welcome to a new episode of the Sustainable Lighting Design Podcast. This is Isabel. And this is Maha. In this episode, we talk with Lisa Heshong, who is an architect and founding principal of the Heshong Mahona Group, a building science consulting firm where she led groundbreaking research showing the relationship between daylight and student test scores and office worker performance. Lisa is also the author of the renowned book Thermal Delight in Architecture and the most recently published book Visual Delight in Architecture along with many groundbreaking technical publications about daylighting and energy efficiency in buildings. In this episode, we talk with Lisa about some of the topics that she covers in her last book, such as the importance and the value of having a view out, as well as how views can be evaluated. We will also discuss with her the benefits and challenges of considering both daylight and electric light when designing buildings and conclusions from the various research that she has led throughout her career. Without further introduction, welcome Lisa Heshung to a new episode of the Sustainable Light and Design Podcast. Hello, Lisa. How are you today? I am very good and happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, we have just gave a brief introduction about your background, but can you tell us a bit more about your passion for working with daylighting and energy efficiency in buildings as a trained architect and dedicating a big part of your career to doing research in the same field? Well, um, when I went to graduate school in architecture, um, that was the beginning of the first energy crisis, as we called it then. Um, And I specialized in designing passive solar buildings um, and also microclimatic design. So it was very much focused on the influence of climate. And I realized as I was designing passive solar homes and offices that I was also providing the daylight to those spaces. And it was that realization that I was doing both simultaneously that started my fascination with light. Um, later in my career, I really delved into efficiency issues um, and especially lighting efficiency issues. And I kept feeling that daylighting was left out of the equation. And so I took it on. <laughs> I started introducing it to every report I wrote. I started trying to bring it into the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and it took off from there. And we were so happy to see that you published a new book, actually, that uh, we have here uh, next to us. And uh, your new book, Visual Delight in Architecture, focuses on daylight and view out. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I had written a very little book called Thermal Delight in Architecture. Actually, it was my master's thesis at MIT back when I was struggling with the issue of what passive solar design should look like in the future and, and looking for design references. And that little book um, was the right thing at the right time. It took off. Um, it has been incorporated into curriculum, architectural curriculums all over the world, and it continues to have an influence. I call it my little ambassador. It makes friends for me wherever it goes. <laughs> um, And people kept asking me, well, why don't you write a sequel? Why don't you write about daylighting since that's what you're doing? Mm. Now? And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm far too busy running a firm. I was 
up to my eyeballs, writing proposals and delivering reports. So it wasn't really until I retired that I began to formulate a way to approach this issue of daylight and now view that I've come to spend so much time on. And I I decided to try to use thermal delight as the voice and as the structure and build on that so that the two books talk to each other a little bit. So that was the inspiration. Well, the first book is how many pages around probably it's, I mean, it's not so substantial as your new book, right? Well, you have to remember that Thermal Delight was written by a 25-year-old graduate student 40 years ago. Um, Very courageous. Visual, <laughs> <laughs> visual Delight is really based on a 40-year career working in the field and all the different factors that came in. So there's just much more meat there, shall we say. Well, it's a great book. So congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. It's uh, quickly, it, it's going to need to be updated very soon, though, because things are changing rapidly. And how has the transition been for you from focusing more on architectural solutions as an architect to providing more scientific research evidence as a researcher? Well, I, I basically spent the first 15 years of my career as a design architect. And I would say many of those years I spent frustrated that I couldn't have a bigger impact than I was, that I was working on one building at a time, that sometimes those buildings would get all the way through design construction documents and then they would be canceled. Um, and also, I was constantly trying to bring daylighting into those designs and being frustrated. Mm. Um, on different levels. And so that experience really informed my later work as a consultant and researcher because I could really speak to the frustrations and challenges that architects face in the field, and I wanted to try to address some of them. Um, and so it really became the motive mm. for my research work. Mm. But you think you had a louder voice as a researcher? than as an architect. I certainly, yes. I, I had a much wider voice. I reached, mm. you know, I influenced far more projects as a researcher mm. than I did as a design architect. When we talk about good views, it will be interesting uh, to hear from you how you personally identified a good view and what the parameters are that play a role actually in whether a view is good or not. Well, I, I understand that there is this great hunger for metrics and codifying things and mm. turning them into verifiable checklists of, how, you know, have we accomplished something? But mm. I think fundamentally, we have to understand that a good view is one that people like to look at, <laughs> right? And mm. so if, if people like it, for whatever reason, it's a good view. and in my book, I explore a lot of reasons, mechanisms that I think may be operating in terms of the health benefits and the well-being benefits that come from view. Mm. But fundamentally, they all require people to want to look at the view, right? And therefore, <laughs> the view should be interesting and engaging. And a lot of the 
descriptions that you see in LEED standards or the WELL standards actually are derived from my earlier research of trying to basically guess ahead of time what might be significant in terms of predicting better performance in students, say, for example. Mm. Um, So we know that people like looking at the sky. They like looking at water. They like looking at uh, plants. If there are plants, there are probably animals which animate it, which make it more interesting. If there is Mm. ground plane, there are probably people and people are always fascinating to people. We love looking at other people. Um, So seeing that kind of movement is interesting. Now getting deeper into the the science, there's strong indication that being able to see sky Mm. is likely very important for a lot of physiological reasons. Um, And the very subtle changes in color intensity that are coming from the sky are being registered physiologically. Um, mm. And that's more direct than, than seeing the reflections off of other surfaces. And so um, sky is probably important. Horizon is probably also very important physiologically in terms of helping us to orient ourselves in space. Um, there's evidence that searching for the horizon is one of the first things that people do and it reduces anxiety. Mm. So I think as as people explore this with science, we'll learn more and more of the bits. But but fundamentally, a, a good view is one that makes people happy mm-hmm. <laughs> and that makes them want to look again. But have you seen any cultural differences between people? I mean, uh, like what is considered a good view? What do you are happy to look at? You know, we've, we've also been asking, are there cultural differences in appetite for daylight? Um, and really, we don't have good discipline studies looking at cultural differences. I think that's a real weakness in the field. Mm. Um, One of my favorite books on the subject was written by Matteo Pericoli, who's an Italian architect and who did these lovely interviews with people all over the world about their views. And then he sketched the views in his books. It's not a scientific study, but it really tries to get at what fascination people have for their daily views and what kind of an emotional relationship they build. Mm. Um, So those are absolutely lovely vignettes um, and I think very provocative. It would be worth looking at. But clearly, I saw in my own work, if I was, when I was um, looking at a U.S. Army installation in the desert, Mm -hmm. soldiers who came not from the desert, were very unhappy looking at the desert. Um, (laughs) However, people that had grown up there found fascination with it. So it has a lot to do with what you grew up with and what your expectations are. Right. And I guess, I mean, now there is a big population that lives in cities that maybe lack, you know, a view into nature from where they live or from, you know, schools or so. Uh, there's there's another good story. When when we were doing our round the country study for the daylight metric study, we had a troop of experts with us that was somewhere between seven to twelve people visiting various built daylight buildings around the country. And when we were in New York City, 
the native New Yorkers would just rap poetic about the views and look at that water tower and there's pigeons and, you know, you can see the, the history going all the way down the street. And, <laughs> and our fellow experts from the Pacific Northwest would just kind of roll their eyes and say, you know, I don't see any mountains. I don't see any trees. It's like, this couldn't possibly be a good view. <laughs> so again, yes, I think it's highly specific to the environment that you love and what you care about determining whether you think it is an interesting view or not. That's very interesting. Well, having a good view is also highly affected by our overall perception of the interior space, right? Um, where also electric lighting plays an important role. What is your take on the current use of electric lighting in buildings? And what is the difference when designing with daylight or designing with electric light? Well, I would love it if all electric designers were very well versed in daylighting analytics and would approach a building first as a daylit space Mm -hmm. and understand that during the daytime, their primary role is to supplement and complement the daylight. Um, I think that certainly in the past, most electric lighting designers were trained to design as if the windows weren't there um, Mm. or to design the space for nighttime use, which is fine because we need light at night. Um, But there wasn't an understanding of responding to the dynamics and subtlety of daylight in the space. I would say that no HVAC engineer would ever think about designing the heating or cooling system for a building without first understanding the climatic conditions that they're working under. Um, so when is it too hot? When is it too cold? When When is there cloudy weather? All of that comes into play in terms of trying to size and balance a system. Mm. So electric lighting designers should do the same thing. They should understand the daylight as the existing climatic conditions in the space that they're working with and then respond to those climatic conditions um, rather than trying to fight it or trying to assume that it's unreliable and therefore we have to, um, you know, just Mm. overpower it. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, one of the complexities with, uh, you know, working with daylighting is that it's dynamic and it's changing all the time. That's the beauty of it and the art of it, yes. (laughs) I agree. I agree totally. Um, But I think that that's what makes it more complicated, I think, for you know, lighting designers are used to work more with static lighting conditions Yes, to take a, a dynamic, ever-changing light source into consideration. But I completely agree with what you just said. I mean, it should be the start of every project um, instead of starting with a black box. That's right. Mm. We're, we're, we are composing a dance. We're composing an entire ballet that is dynamic um, as opposed to just putting people on the stage in set positions and Mm. and telling them to stand there. Mm. (laughs) Everything is in motion. You mentioned also in your book, the concept of uh, moving around daylight and that we move electric lighting ourselves. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by that? It starts from my thinking that the daylighting is very, very big. It's everywhere. It's right. It's, the entire half of our globe is our daylighting resource. And 
if you are outside where daylighting is the only option mm. during the day, um, you move to the location that's best suited to your work. So you, you might move under a tree or you might move into a sunny spot, depending on both your thermal and visual needs. And so the daylighting is there and we move in response to it. Whereas with electric lighting, we're in charge. It's small. We can pick it up and move it where we need to. Certainly now with smaller LEDs and battery charged electric lighting sources, it's infinitely portable. And so we we take it to where we are and solve those problems locally. Um, we're not as restricted in lighting design as we used to be when everything had to be built in and hardwired um, and switched. We have so much more control now um, with infin- infinitely small devices, teeny little bits of light that can mm. just be put where they're needed, when they're needed, at the right level that they're needed. Uh, it's really a whole new ball game, so to speak. Yeah. Um, with lighting design that can go smaller, 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 more mobile, 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 more controllable, controllable, Mm. whereas daylighting remains this presence that we are responding to um, and trying to mold with our architectural design. In your opinion, also, do people value view out more in some specific types of buildings or environments in comparison to others? Well, I think that people need a view wherever they spend their day. Um, And I believe there's evidence that given the opportunity, people will be looking out at a view very frequently on the order of every few minutes um, while they're working, even if it's unconscious. Um, So regardless of what the task is, having that opportunity provides a lot of cognitive and emotional support. But that said, are there some people that are more vulnerable um, and who especially need this that we really need to pay attention to? And I would say, yes, certainly children, especially because their eyes are developing mm-hmm. and being what they look at has a big impact on both the development of their eyes and their visual systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can get into that more. Um And similarly, people that are confined indoors because of a health problem or a disability are especially vulnerable. They don't have the option of jumping outside for a quick sunbreak. And so we need to be really thoughtful. Um, So this includes certainly hospital patients, nursing home patients, Mm. um, but also prisoners, any one um, or or security workers that must stay inside all day and attend very closely Mm. to incoming information. They also need that relief. Um, So the more pressures there are for a person to stay inside for whatever reason, the more important it is that they have access to views and daylight whenever they might choose. And from your experience, despite that we know that research is still lacking enough information to have metrics for evaluating view out, 
What do you think about the current metrics for evaluating view out and certifications like LEED, WELL, and the British Standard? Do you think they can be used as a reference when designing new buildings? Well, I think they're a very good start. Um, I think the earlier LEED version especially was quite robust. Unfortunately, LEED has taken a step back and watered down their criteria substantially. Um, we're hoping they will turn that around <laughs> um, going forward. I've been particularly impressed with what I think of as the European approach, or maybe it's the British approach, of asking for a three-layered view, mm. um, meaning sky, ground, and everything in between. Those are the three layers. And it's very simple, but it encompasses almost everything that people want to see in a view. So if mm. there's ground that includes activity of people and animals and traffic, it includes water, right? All the things that happen on, on flat ground. If it's sky, you're getting the strong circadian signals from that sky. It probably also means there's some sun that crosses your path to brighten your day. And then everything in between is the stuff where we live, the buildings, but also the trees where the birds live, and provides the visual complexity that our eyes crave. So just by saying that a good view includes those three elements, you mm. have a pretty high probability that you've captured some of the really interesting stuff. Um, mm. So I, I applaud that approach. Um, it's simple and elegant <laughs> um, and doesn't require a lot of measurement. There are people that are working on ways of how to evaluate that using simulation tools. Um, and so, you know, that may become easier to analyze and verify in the future, which is encouraging. I think it's very important to um, uh, simulate or include these questions uh, from the very first stage in the design and to consider also the different types of uh, users that are going to use the space, like if, for example, if it's a, ch a child or if it's an elderly person and so on. And we've also seen some attempts lately of developers wanting to build hotels and student dorms and even office spaces without daylight arguing that a dynamic lighting setting can replace the benefits from natural light and a screen with a fake view to, towards a view out. What is your view on this? <laughs> People who are very interested in those topics believe that they are solving an urgent need and they presume that we are stuck with buildings that cannot have windows because of the density of our cities and because of our real estate pressures, and therefore they're providing an alternative. So they have good motivations. However, what I see happening is that those technologies become enabling technologies to do exactly what they are trying to solve, um, which is enabling buildings to become deeper, mm. broader, darker, and enabling people to justify putting human activities in non-daylit spaces. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a vicious mm. cycle. Mm. Um, 
And we saw the culmination of it in the dorms being proposed for UC Santa Barbara, um, the Munger Hall dorms that became a internet controversy in November of last year, 2021, which is just appalling. I, I think that it's a real wake-up call that there is a threat, both from the real estate industry mm. and from developers who discount the importance of giving people access to the outdoors, giving people access to views and daylight. Um, they don't see it as an essential value and are happy to substitute these technologies, which I call a placebo because they don't have a measurable effect. Mm. Um, one very good set of studies done for this by Peter Kahn at the University of Washington did a very careful look at having people who have a real window covering it with a television that produced a webcam of the same view outside mm. um, versus no window at all. And what he found was, of course, people preferred the television view over mm. nothing, right? People will always prefer something yeah. over mm. nothing, but there were no measurable benefits. Whereas the real view did have measurable cognitive and physiological benefits. Um, so we're on we're on this sort of slippery slope where the technology and the venture capitalists are really eager to develop a product that they can sell. Mm. And I've been trying to tell architects that they're selling your product, right? They're <laughs> trying to take value away from your buildings that you can design with real daylight in view, which are inherently valuable and will be valuable for generations to come for the next 50 or 100 years versus packaging it into an electronic system that will have to be upgraded five years from now and repeated and repeated. And meanwhile, we're left with these buildings that don't have the essential value of daylight and view. So that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, with, like with many other subjects that we've been discussing through the different podcast episodes, there's this big gap between the people that has the knowledge, the researchers, or even the we that practice um, daylight design and uh, artificial lighting design, um, and the users. Like, I mean, this type of uh, sort of strategies, they do not convince us at all, but it does get in the minds of users that maybe this is actually a, a, a good idea. I mean, if they can get like cheaper apartments without views, without knowing the real consequences behind. Yeah. Well, you know, we are so motivated to have a product. We're so used to having a product that will solve a problem. And the benefits of daylight and view are very broad. They're very well documented, but they're subtle. People don't die from a lack of view, right? If people started dying from lack of view, it would go up dramatically <laughs> on the value. <laughs> um, what happens, however, is there's just a very slow attrition in terms of well-being and performance and a slow increase in depression and anxiety. And it's, it's difficult to pinpoint directly to a single cause. Um, so... 
yes, it's a continuing challenge. Mm. One of the other things that I've observed is that people who are making these decisions for windowless buildings or substituting daylight are doing it on behalf of other people, rarely for themselves. Mm. Rarely that is anyone's first choice. Um, And often it's in a school environment where there's a desperate situation for funding and everyone's looking for cost-cutting measures and windows look expensive. So maybe we can just get rid of them. It's happened over and over and over again across multiple generations. Um, It will continue to pop up. That just seems to be an enduring challenge that we have to deal with. You have worked a lot with uh, school buildings as well, uh, both as an architect and as a researcher, right? Yes, I have. And you have led very interesting studies, such as the Michigan study in the 60s and the California study in the early 2000s. What were the conclusions of these studies? Well, I I did not lead the Michigan study, but I reported on it. Um, I was curious where the early justification for doing schools with no windows had come from. Um, In the United States during the 1960s, they became popular. I went to one of those high schools um, and had very wrenching experiences (laughs) with that transition. Um, And so I was really interested to delve into that Michigan study. It was done in the early 60s. There were all sorts of engineering benefits that were presumed for getting rid of the windows, Um, lots of pressures on constructability and such. But the study was so poorly conducted It was just really rinky-dink, but funded by the Ford Foundation and reported with great solemnity and became quite influential and a justification later on for people to start building schools and classrooms with no windows. Um, So I take it apart in my book. And it's it's so bad, it's almost funny. um, But it's also (laughs) tragic, because it it had quite an influence on generations of students who had to go to school in those schools. Um, There's also a very heartwarming story about um, a girl who started high school in Capistrano, California, and her brand new high school had no windows. And she was just outraged. Turns out she was the daughter of one of the school board members who Mm. (laughs) he then challenged her, well, why don't you do something about it, kid? (laughs) So she actually raised a million plus dollars to retrofit the school and get windows put in. Um, And also got the school board to change its policy to advocate for daylighting, which mm. actually enabled my study years later because then the school district had a wide range of conditions from schools with no windows to teeny little windows to aggressive daylighting, both from the earlier 1950s era and then from the later era after this high school girl had her impact. I would certainly love to meet her and get the story directly from her. But it it shows how subject to fashion this can be. Mm. And um, I've I've I think I've seen it all. I've seen every reason for 
taking out windows or putting them back in. I've seen it done well. I've seen it done poorly. Um, yes, I have quite a range of experiences on the school front. Seen a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But what was uh, the California study about in the early 2000s? At that point, I was working primarily in energy efficiency and There was a brief period of time when the funders of that, which is the utility um, companies and utility commission in California, believed in something called market transformation, which for them meant that if we could show there were benefits to energy efficiency measures above and beyond the cost savings of the energy, then we would have faster adoption. And we want to do whatever we can to speed up adoption of energy efficiency measures. So I used that argument to propose this study looking at daylighting and proposing that if indeed there were non-energy benefits, such as better school performance or better retail sales or better cognitive performance of office workers, that that would help speed the adoption of the energy efficiency benefits of daylighting. Um, And I got funded, which was fabulous. Um, it was a real blessing. And then proceeded to recruit three school districts, um, very large school districts of 20,000 students each um, in Seattle, Washington, far north, in um, Fort Collins, Colorado, sort of middle latitude of the country, and then in San Juan Capistrano, California, which is at the southern end of California. So a lot of latitude spread and very different histories and cultures. Mm. And we got all of the student performance and demographic data into a database and then added in information about the classroom daylighting and windows and skylights and multivariate regression analysis came back with very strong association between more daylight, bigger views, more skylighting and better student performance. Mm. And so that was really the beginning. Um, we had to go through quite a number of reviews led by Lawrence Berkeley National Labs before we were allowed to publish the study. Um, but once it came out, it really made, had shockwaves in the educational establishment around, certainly in the United States. And school architects started talking about natural light a lot. And also outside the United States. I mean, it has been a reference here in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about views, uh, especially in schools, I mean, do they present any disadvantage as well for kids um, who maybe have uh, specific conditions like attention disorder or dyslexia? Well, the evidence is that spending more time outside is enormously beneficial, especially for children who have attention issues. Um, and that having stronger circadian stimulus, whether it's time outside or through more daylight and more views, is also highly beneficial. Often these children have sleep problems mm. and more exposure to daylight is very supportive for them. I have evidence, I have a hypothesis that actually having a view and having the ability to learn to switch your attention between the outdoors and indoors is both therapeutic and an important skill, um, mm. and that students need the opportunity to learn that. Um, 
there's there's many more arguments to be made um, for the importance of view and windows for children, and especially relative to their eye health and the growth, the development of their visual systems and perceptions. They are learning to filter information. And, mm. and you see the same thing with acoustics, that children are not nearly as good at filtering acoustic information and, and pulling out the relevant, the salient information as adults are. It's, it's a process they need to learn. Mm. And if they are never in an environment where they need to learn that, they don't get as good at it. Yeah. Um, Like learning to focus inside a classroom, for example, if you have like continuous movement outside. If you don't learn that as a kid, yep. maybe you have issues later on to adapt to such conditions. Well, there's, there's a, a very interesting study that just came out of Norway looking at the cognitive development of children who basically are in forest schools or spend almost all of their days outside versus children in more traditional classrooms. And the children who spend more time outside have faster cognitive development. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty compelling. I really hope that these findings can influence how we design schools in many cities, actually. I mean, here in Sweden, of course, we take that into account. We try to take that into account. Mm. Um, but um, I feel it's very important for the development of the kids. So, Well, there's also growing evidence that exposure to the outdoors, exposure to daylight is very important to reduce the prevalence of myopia. Mm. Children's eyes are growing through childhood and adolescence, um, and myopia s- seems to be a circadian malady. Um, So providing better input to the eye, especially in terms of circadian cycles and daylight spectrum, seems to be very protective. Um, And I think this is going to become an increasingly important issue Mm. for school design. Uh, On an urban level, we read a term that caught our attention actually in your book, which was uh, killer views. Can you explain (laughs) to us what that means? Um, that's a real estate term, and by it they mean if there is a killer view, people will come and and just open up their wallets and spend money mm. because they want that view so badly. Um, so, for example, it's being able to see the in San Francisco, it's being able to see the Golden Gate Bridge. In Paris, it's being able to see the Eiffel Tower. Mm. Um, and if that element is within the view, all of a sudden the property is infinitely more valuable. Well, not infinitely, but maybe two, four, ten times more valuable if that element is within the view. So mm. that's, you know, it's a slang term for meaning something people really want. And considering these uh, economic benefits that we know that a good view can bring, do you think there will be a transition in the construction industry in the US, for example, but also globally? on planning new districts, or do you think there is still a tendency to favor square meters per built area over having a good view? Well, I think it's really an urban planning policy issue because any given property owner will tend to try to maximize the view from their property. Um, It's well understood that view will add to the value of a given building or property. 
Um, but selfishly, they don't care what they do to their neighbors. Um, and so that really requires some government oversight and guidance to help rationalize it so that all property owners have as much possible access to view that their view of the sky isn't being overshadowed by huge buildings dominating that there's a way to give more people access to the view of the ocean or the mountain or whatever is valued. Um, that can be done with height restrictions. It can be done with view sheds. It can be done with setbacks. Um, mm. It can be done with requirements for the massing of buildings. There's a lot of thought that can go into it, but it it takes political will to make that important. Mm. And that's really what I'm advocating for is to increase that political will mm. and say, we really need this, especially as our population grows, as our cities get denser, it needs very careful attention. So what do we need to do now and in the future to put daylight and views in focus in the design process? And uh, what do we have to stop doing? <laughs> what do we have to stop doing? It's a very big question. That <laughs> is a very big question. Um, I, I think we have to stop assuming that somebody else will solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And all of us in every different profession have a contribution to make to this field. So one of the things that I love about daylighting is it's very holistic. It integrates everything in the design process, but that also means that it, it's easy to say it's somebody else's problem. Mm. Um, so urban designers, architectural designers, interior designers, lighting designers, even mechanical engineers, um, building managers and maintenance people, everyone has a role, even the occupants of the building in terms of insisting on the value and the importance to them. So mm. we have to stop assuming it's somebody else's problem. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to look for every way that within your own profession that you can have influence, both in terms of your own decisions, but also in terms of your collaborations with others and, and bringing the issue up. I tend to think that lighting designers have the most training in visual conditions mm -hmm. and therefore they should be prominent spokespeople for the importance of view to the visual environment. Um, but architects are the ones shaping the geometry of the building and so they have an equal responsibility. They should also be the ones who are really curating the mm. view and understanding how their framing of windows affects the people inside of the space. Um, interior designers are incredibly important because they influence where people are in the building, how they are sitting, relationship to the windows, how they can get to operating the blinds or the curtains or the shades and being able to interact and manipulate the windows. Um, you know, it goes on and on and on, but you can sort of run through every profession that touches a building and Somewhere along the line, they will impact the daylighting options and availability in that building. So I'm trying to encourage everyone to take responsibility for this. That's very important. And I think that, I mean, as a lighting designer, I mean, it has been tremendously helpful 
to read the studies that you have made, because um, they have been an, a reference I personally have used sometimes to advocate for the importance of better daylighting and view out in projects. Um, so it's tremendously important that we also, as practitioners, have this connection to what research says, because it's sort of supporting our daily work to do better and to challenge everyone else in the project to do better. Well, that's that's good to hear. And I think that my role going forward is really to try to make those connections and bring the researchers out into the world of practitioners and help support these kinds of decisions. Often, researchers are very cautious and mm. don't want to overstate their case. But in the meantime, buildings are getting built. <laughs> People are living their lives. Um, decisions are being made. So mm. we need as much information as we can while those design decisions are being made. I agree. Just before we finish with this interesting talk, we have a question we ask all our guests, which is to tell us about their favorite light memory, or it can also be a moment in their life or an experience of a specific lighting condition. So Lisa, we would like to ask you to tell us about your favorite light moment that you remember. Well, that, that, is, that is a challenging question. Um, the one that pops to mind is I go back to when I was a young student, maybe 11 or 12 years old, and somehow walked out into my driveway and found a raindrop about to fall off of a leaf and realized that I could see the entire world captured in that one bright little raindrop. And I just became mesmerized with the optics of this teeny little drop of clear water and what I could see in it. Um, so that really sticks with me, the, the magic of optics and the magic of light. Beautiful story. Thank you so much, Lisa, for uh, taking your time to be with us here yeah. today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much. It's uh, been a very interesting talk. It's been a fun conversation, and I certainly appreciate your interest. Thank you for listening and stay posted for the upcoming interviews on our website sliteindesign.com.